Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2021. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them, and... Chaos Blue, a.k.a. The Maverick, she, her. Chaos Blue, thanks so much for coming on. You're so welcome. I am so excited to be here with you guys. You guys run an awesome show. Thank oh, you. Thanks so much. I'm a fan of yours as well. And that actually leads me to a question I have for you. You bet. You are the Maverick on the Fanfic Maverick podcast, right? Absolutely. So, what is your most controversial Maverick-like opinion about fanfiction? <laughs> um, I have two for you. Uh, my first controversial opinion is that I love Severus Snape from Harry Potter. I'm a Severus Snape apologist. I understand that's a controversial opinion to have these days, but you, you know, bite me. Um, and then my second controversial opinion is that I, I have no squicks. Like I will read anything. No trigger warnings apply to me. So I do sometimes bring on controversial topics to my show. We've talked about ABO. We've talked about, um, you know, BDSM recently <laughs> and some other controversial oh. things. And uh, I think that that's important to talk about because it's part of fan fiction. And uh, I think we can expose that to the harsh reality of 2021. And it's just fine. Yes, well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you don't need trigger warnings because this fanfic ended up going places that I did not expect when I chose it as the topic for today. Yes, absolutely. I was not expecting the way this one went, but, you know, <laughs> we might as well just get on into it. Well, before that, uh, I'm delighted to have you on as a guest, both in general and because you're bringing to the table a fandom that I otherwise would not feel prepared to talk about in the slightest, which is the A-Team. and. I'd like to ask you about your background with the A-Team, but before that, I can share mine in about, you know, three sentences, which is that I, I was born in 87, and so I grew up with a general fondness for Mr. T, it, like, is suffused in pop culture, and knowledge of the A-Team opening monologue. And that's, like, all I've got, just from, like, that pop culture diffusion. Tori, are you similar? You're even younger. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, no, I was born in 89, so it's basically the same. Like, right. I... Don't think I've ever seen a full episode of A-Team. I have seen it referenced many times. Like, I know the structure. Yep. I know the concept. And I know who Mr. T is. That's about <laughs> it. But what about you, Chaos Blue? What's your background with this franchise? Okay, so I call myself an old crone. But the truth is that I was born in 1983. So I'm only 38. So um, the A-Team actually ran from 1983 to 1987. And my father loves watching TV shows about the good old boys, you know? He was constantly watching things like Walker, Texas Ranger, and he loved things like Bruce mm -hmm. Lee. Anything, you know, violent and crazy like that, he was just all over it. And he used to put on the A-Team, and I remember being very young, like we're talking like five, six, seven, and I would be sitting there watching the A-Team. And who doesn't love as a like a seven-year-old kid to sit there and watch Mr. T on the screen? Like he's very cool, right, to watch <laughs> and entertaining and all of that. So God, I was a little kid when I first started watching the A-Team. And I do remember that my mother was upset by that because the A-Team is inherently a violent show for the 80s. I say for the 80s because nobody ever actually dies 
in the A-team. <laughs> Nobody gets shot, even though there you know, are tons of guns and explosions happening all over the place. You don't see blood. Um, a lot of people have described it as a very um, cartoony depiction of violence, but it was still violent. She didn't like that. She tried to keep us from watching the A-team. Didn't work out so well for her. Here I am all these years later. I still watch it sometimes. And obviously I'm reading fan fiction about it. So there you go. Yeah. Your uh, household dynamic sounds a lot like mine. Like my dad would show me things like The Untouchables, the movie, you know, and my mom would just be like, don't show that to them. That's not appropriate. You know, the background, you know, like all the time. So. Yeah, absolutely. That whole, uh, you know, afraid that the violence would make us violent and disrespectful in return. Um, can't really say that that happened, but, you know, it is what it is. That was definitely a thing in our generation, for sure. So when did you get into the A-Team fanfiction scene then? Like, when did you go back and look online or whatever for stories about this? Yeah, so... I was about 14 years old when we got the internet for the first time. That was 1997. And I think before the show, we were talking about the old dial-up, you know, internet version. That's what we had at my house. We had AOL dial-up. And um, I remember discovering fan fiction. And then in my late teens, I started hunting online for fan fictions related to fandoms that I was familiar with. And um, in my late teens, I had found the A-Team rerun that were being shown on TNT at the time. And I convinced my mother that I was responsible enough to watch the A-Team reruns. They came on in the afternoons. We weren't really allowed to watch TV at my house in the afternoon on a weekday, but she let me do it anyway because I was was a pretty good kid. Um, And so that kind of sparked my interest all over again in the A-Team. So I start looking online and I found the most amazing A-Team fanfiction archive site This was, of course, back in the day before fanfiction.net existed. Obviously, this was way before AO3 existed. Uh, It was very common to have those, um, you know, those those fan-run archives back in the 90s and the early 2000s. And uh, this one was called fanfiction. Let's see. It was called ateamfanfiction.net. And I was there practically every day. <laughs> it was my first exposure to controversial topics in fan fiction. I read my first non-con on this site, you know, so, you know, for all that's worth. But it 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 was like, I think, the biggest one for fan fiction, mm. uh, 18 fan fiction. That's really interesting because that means you would have been deep into 18 fan fiction at about the time this story came out. But I got this through another A-Team fanfiction site from about that era. I mean, my capture off of archive.org is from 2001, but this is ateamfanfic.com, which I guess is different. And I'm not I sure ch- that it is. I think that they may have changed the um, URL a little bit, because when I bring it up, that is the site that I was on. Oh, okay. In the 90s, yeah. I, I would have been surprised if there were two rival A-Team fanfiction sites at exactly that era on that, you know, era of the internet. I mean, I wouldn't have been that surprised, but I would have been a little bit surprised. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I, as soon as I pulled it up when we were searching for the fic, I thought, oh my God, this is exactly it. And I actually went through and I found a lot of the old fics that I remember reading back when I was like 18, 19. Um, you know, Interesting story. You can cut this out of the podcast if you want to, but my uh, Chaos Blue username online comes from a poem that was posted 
on this website in 1999, and I've had it ever since. So, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Why would we cut that? <laughs> I don't know. It's silly. It's silly. But I was so into it. And uh, and yeah, there was a line in that poem that used the phrase chaos blue. And I just thought that was so freaking cool. So I kept it. I put it on my car when I went off to college. Like That's awesome. <laughs> you know? No, I mean, here's this is the cool thing. And also, I love chaos blue. I mean, blue is my favorite color. That's like, that's a great name. And who doesn't like, that's the thing about what we do here talking about fanfic is talking about people who are drawing inspiration from a community. And I think that's awesome, to be honest. Oh, thanks. Well, speaking of the community, since I knew nothing about A-Team fanfiction, and, you know, you preferred to have a suggestion, I did my usual thing of going to fanfiction awards. And this website had, you know, a couple of years of fanfiction awards archived. They had an inaugural story awards, and then second annual VA story awards. I'm not sure why they're called the VA Story Awards. Is that like a an A-team related abbreviation? Most likely it is. Um, to understand that reference, you have to understand a little bit more of the backgrounds of the various characters on the A-team. One of the characters on the A-team is H.M. Murdoch. We don't know what the H.M. stands for, but he says it stands for Howlin' Mad Murdoch. Um, there is a point in the A-Team backstory where uh, Murdoch gets committed to a VA hospital psych- psychiatric ward. Um, we're not sure if he's actually crazy or if he's just posing, but I suspect that the VA fanfiction award is probably a reference to the VA hospital where oh. Murdoch is currently ensconced. So, Got it. Well, yeah. in this second annual VA Story Awards, for the year 2000. Um, I was just looking for what the top story was. And the winner in this, you know, general story category was Dark Passage by Elizabeth Kent. And I also happened to notice that it also was first place in the Slash category for that year. And furthermore, the author Elizabeth Kent had two other stories that placed in these awards this year. So clearly, like, she was, you know, someone in the scene here. Uh, she has the first and the third place awards for for Slash for this year, actually. And so uh, I figured if it's if it was somewhat well regarded, that's good enough. That's a reason to think that it might be good. And we went ahead and ran with it. Well, I will say this fanfic is well written, um, but I don't know. I guess we haven't touched on this yet. It, it definitely um, went places that none of us expected. I know we're going to have the uh, the trigger warnings in the show notes, but in case anyone oh, lost yes. those. There is sexual assault and violent sexual assault and I don't know Flashback how to sexual assault. what happens at the end. Yeah, like, it's a pretty rough read. Um, so just for anybody who's listening, be aware. <laughs> and if you want to read it, the copy that I found that is still online that you don't have to go through archive.org for, but you don't have to go through Wayback Machine for, is hosted on aceteamslash.sockypress.com. Uh, sorry, .org, and I'll obviously be providing a link there in the show notes. I, However, I feel like that copy that we read, it looks like some formatting might have gotten lost. I have a feeling the author intended for there to be like some, you know, little scene breaks or something that might have disappeared. Uh, not a big deal. Just maybe not presented to its full effect. Are we ready to jump into the content of the story? I think that sounds great. Yeah. As ready as we'll ever be. 
then um, Chaos Blue, do you mind kind of starting us off with the setup for this story? Yeah, so I think to understand the setup, you kind of have to understand what the A-Team was all about in the first place. The A-Team was a very formulaic show where each episode was them being hired to help a client with some kind of problem that they have. And the type of problem that these people are bringing to the A-Team is the type of problem that really can't be solved um, through normal law enforcement channels, right? So if you have a problem, if nobody else can help, if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team, right? So the A-Team comes into the beginning of the story, and they have been hired by this man who has a problem. <laughs> his son has gone missing. And uh, he just really wants to find his son. His son went to work for this guy called Ted Wright. And um, I don't know, was it a couple of months or a couple of years into working for this like weird guy, Ted Wright? He just kind of disappears and nobody knows where he went. And so they approach the A-team for some assistance here, uh, which, you know, typically would be maybe something that the A-team would get involved with and everything because they have resources and they have experience um, with different things. And so maybe they can help. So that's kind of how the story starts out is they have this brand new case brought to them. Um, it is a little bit unusual in the way that it starts out, just in the sense that Face is the one who is in charge of this particular operation. That never happened in canon. It was always Hannibal who was the one in charge because he's the colonel and he's in charge of the team and everything. So I just thought that was a kind of a, an interesting way to start out this unusual fic was instead of Hannibal being in charge, it's Face who's putting the whole operation together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because Face feels a lot of pressure, you know, and it's good to, you know, you get the impression, the author makes it clear that this is the, like, the first mission he's really been put in charge of. But it's good to know that, that like also comes directly from the source. What was a little confusing to me in this opening is they have to infiltrate so they have to infiltrate this guy's Richard Wright is the employer of the man whose son has gone missing. And they figure out the son is gay. The the son who's gone missing is gay. And for some reason that means that Face and Murdoch have to pretend to be a couple, like all the way in. And I'm not sure why that was the case, or maybe that is something that happens in the source, like that they go full commitment to these roles. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that, I guess. Well, this guy, right, is known for his, like, support of gay employees and equal opportunity rights and that sort of thing. But you're right, that did seem like a little bit of a leap to me, too. Like, that doesn't mean you have to be gay to be hired by him, mm -hmm. like, or married or, any, or anything, but that's well, just kind of where it goes out, with it. <laughs> right, it turns out to be the case that it was But they don't know that, that at the time. That. But right. no, it doesn't seem like they know anything about it, so... Well, the funny thing about that, too, is that it is so unusual just in the sense that the way Face puts this operation together, he decides on the long con. That never happened in canon. Like, that is such an okay. unusual thing to do because normally the A-team busts in there and they outsmart the bad guys and they shoot some guns and they explode some cars and, um, and then the problem is solved, right? They tend to use more flashy, showy violence to solve problems. 
And this was so unusual in the sense that they decide to go in and pose as these two characters for like the long con. I didn't quite. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pick on it just a little bit because like this is where I felt like the fanfic was the weakest. And I, I actually think the writing's really strong and the story's really strong. But right here, I was like, they have to not only pose as a couple, you know, assume new identities, but they have to get an apartment together and pretend to be living together. And not just that, Murdoch, so Face goes to work for Wright's company, right, to investigate Wright, who's the guy we're investigating. And Murdoch has to pretend to be a fashion designer and actually make fashion designs. And then, um, oh man, I forgot, Hannibal, right, yeah. is the older guy has to pretend to be his dad and he has to pretend to have an antique company and they have to repaint the van with the antique company logo. And I'm like, why is any of this necessary? <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to pick on that a bit. It's established when they're hired that like this, this kid disappeared. I mean, the kid of the person who hired them, not that he was a kid at the time. This guy disappeared several years ago, and the dad is only just now kind of seeking this because the dad knows that he's dying and wants this loose thread wrapped up. And so they mention, like, oh, the trail's really cold. And I think that's what's supposed to justify the long con. But, I mean, it definitely did reach the point in the story where it's like, you may not have enough evidence to turn this guy into the police, but you have enough evidence to go shoot up the place and, like, wreck some shit. Like, I, I feel like they've maybe operated on less justification than they get in this story so i was kind of expecting at some point for it to turn to just like okay like we know we know that this guy's bad news now it's time to like shoot some weapons and that never really happened that's what i was thinking too because you know in most of the canon a-team episodes they don't go around gathering evidence they don't really care about the evidence their evidence is that their client hired them their client is saying this guy is a bad guy you know and that's usually all the justification that they need to just burst in and start shooting right so it was <laughs> it was just really funny to me that they felt the need to go in there and gather the evidence and i'm assuming that perhaps that's justified by the fact that they were kind of still hoping to find this young man alive perhaps and they were hoping to go in and maybe get some evidence or some information that might be able to lead them to this young man uh, I mean, they also mentioned wanting to, like, get evidence to ensnare or follow up on, like, various other networked, you know, people who are in on the crimes being committed here. Um, but but I, I think it sounds like you're confirming that, like, even if that's not an unreasonable thing to do in the broad sense, it's not an A-team thing to do, which is a little it's bit strange. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like... The author's getting away with it a little bit because this is Face's first job and he's the confidence man. So that's maybe more his modus operandi, right? So they're letting him take the wheel and that's why they get away with sort of breaking the formula a little bit. Though I'm not saying it's fully justified. I just feel like that's probably the author's justification there. Well, you definitely do sense early on Face's enthusiasm, enthusiasm where he's like, oh yeah, we're going to set up all these fake alibis and really like dig in deep for this like long con and like, you know, I'm actually going to get employed at this thing. And, you know, we're going to rehearse our, our backstories. And, like, yeah, I, I feel like there is that. That this is, this is the way Face would do things if Face was planning the missions instead of Hannibal is kind of the idea. 
Yes, both of your points are absolutely correct that this is the first time Face has ever planned anything. And Hannibal's just kind of letting him go for it, you know. And so he does. He comes up with all these crazy backstories and all these crazy fake documents, you know, and makes it as real as possible. But you are right in the sense that this is probably how Face would go about it because he is the grifter of the group, right? He's the guy who can glibly uh, infiltrate a group. He can act. Um, so this is exactly the way he would probably go about it, even though it's not the usual way that the A-team would handle problems. And so just kind of continuing on into the plot, um, Face pretends to be a business person to get hired by, um, by this guy's business. I, I didn't even pay much attention to what the deal with, is with the business. I, I don't care. The fanfic writer doesn't care too much either. It's fine. Um, and Murdoch's going to be his spouse, and they're going to be, like, from back east and kind of fleeing, like, bad gay-bashing or discriminatory experiences and kind of, you know, grateful to be working with this guy who has a, a good track record with, um, with civil rights and that sort of thing. Quick question. They mentioned being married, and they mentioned forging a marriage license, but... Gay marriage was not legal in, when was, 1998 was when this was written, right? So is this an alternate universe or I'm not quite sure just, or were they not actually married or I, I wasn't clear. I had that same question when I read this because you're correct that gay marriage was not legal. Um, the A-team mostly operated um, in places like California. So in California, it definitely wasn't legal at this time. So I was also a bit confused as to what they meant by that. And I'm not sure if they just used the word marriage to mean commitment in this you know, sense or what it was really going on. Right. But, um, but no, you're, you are absolutely correct. And I had that same thought that it wouldn't have actually technically been legal. Yeah, but they could easily be, uh, well, I think they could have been a domestic partnership or I don't know, civil unions might have been a thing at the time. I don't remember, but it was. So, so Face gets hired and, you know, he goes into the business and what, what happens is he does endear himself to write pretty quickly through a combination of like sycophantic praise and being hot as it turns out because Wright is clearly into him um and you know he's trying to like sneak peeks at secret documents that are in like a, a file cabinet and stuff and you know this is taking lots lots of time and in the meantime he and Murdoch also kind of forge this friendship with this other couple at the company, Dan and Keith, who are older than them and who have like are really well established at the company. And, you know, they start hanging out outside of work and all this sorts of things like they they really develop this whole second life that they dig down into together. Yeah, this is the other this is, again, the part where I'm sort of like, why such commitment? Because they live in an apartment together. Even when they're at home together, they're calling each other by their fake names and, like, pretending to play these roles. Like, I guess just in case things are bugged. But there's also an implication that, you know, it, it makes more sense to me for Face, you know, the confidence man to, like, full, like throw himself into a role. But apparently Murdoch does, too. Like, and uh, like later on, there's this implication that he's not sure if, if Murdoch is fully playing a role or if he really cares about him sort of thing. And I was like, I don't know if that necessarily works for the character, but then again, I don't know the character super well, so. 
Yeah, it, I thought it was a little interesting just in the sense that um, even though this this story is only, what, 18 parts long, it felt like a slow burn to me <laughs> because, you know, mm-hmm. at, at first, uh, Face is going in there every day to pose as this character at this firm, and he's barely getting any information or any work done on the actual con you know, it's more like he's just having a good time playing the role, which I thought was really mm-hmm. weird because, like, it talks about him being at the firm for months, right? Getting to know right, right getting to know everybody else. And he barely has anything to show for it. And it is interesting that they choose to commit so fully. But um, I also feel like it does sort of speak to the nefariousness of right or what they think is the nefariousness of right that that they would have to commit so fully to be believed or else things could get dangerous with their mark. There's also a scene where Hannibal calls face out on this, where he's like, you've been there for months, you have practically nothing. And are you sure that like, you're not just enjoying playing house here and like, you know, being a business person and, you know, face refutes Hannibal. And he's like, yeah, I know I don't have much, but like this guy's bad news. And I think I have a shot at getting more and I haven't forgotten what I'm there for. And Hannibal Hannibal seems like he's really, he accepts that. He's like, okay, like, well, it's your job. Like, if that's your call, then I'll follow that call. Which, I mean, I don't know much about the character, but if he's been the guy in charge the whole time, it it speaks to something, I feel like. Some level of trust that he's engaging here, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It, to be honest with you, it really did feel out of character for me because Hannibal would never do that. Like, I'm just saying that, like, if he felt that his guys were in danger or if he felt like it was taking too long, Hannibal's not a patient person, right? He would just be like, okay, well, we tried it your way. <laughs> we're just going to go in with some guns now and take care of this shit. So I don't know. It, I don't know. It was, it was just really weird to watch Hannibal like push face on that and then back away so quickly and be like, oh, you're right. It's your job. Do it your way. And it's not like they're doing side jobs in the meantime. You know, he and B.A. are running an antique store for these same hunts. Yeah. Why? Again, <laughs> I don't want to hammer it too hard, but this was the part where I was just like, why is all of this happening? However, it does feel like as we move further in the story, there's a real justification. and. And I think, Amado, you mentioned this is like, because Richard Wright is actually pretty dangerous and well, he suspects anything. Oh, sorry. Chaos yeah. Blue mentioned that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that he's actually pretty dangerous. I don't know how they knew this to start, but things kind of, after they're doing this for a long time, like months and months undercover, there's one other thing that comes up between Face and Murdoch, which is the same thing. Like, Face almost thinks, like, maybe I do want to settle down and not do this stuff anymore, which I think is a prelude to them, you know, maybe having a relationship or I don't know if it's true to the characters, but that's a thing. But things progress and um, Face kind of gets in good with Wright. And I I don't know if it's revealed now or later, but it's probably mostly because Wright thinks he's hot. So it, that seems to be the implication is like, that's why he keeps him around his office doing clerical work. At one point, I, I like the author mentioning like, um, that whatever the secretary thought about about face being invited into Wright's office to do secretarial work while the actual secretary didn't have anything to do, uh, the secretary kept it to themselves or something like that. Just, it is a little weird. <laughs> and Yeah, yeah. At this point, I think that we start to see like creepy behavior 
from right mm-hmm. towards face, you know? And that leads into this significant part of the fanfic where it really becomes a tense thriller as opposed to the, what you were calling a slow burn chaos blue. It's, it's just like kind of doesn't let up on being really creepy and dangerous for an entire long section of the fanfic where Face and Murdoch, you know, in their in their secret identities, are invited to Wright's kind of special home, I don't know what you call it, mansion, kind of out separately, surrounded by armed guards in this little town. And Dan and Keith are invited too. And this is apparently a thing that happens with like the, you know, the high ups in the company who Wright really likes sometimes. And it's just the four of them. And it is really dangerous because you get these dynamics going on really quickly where they're there to get information in the middle of a lot of people with, you know, weapons and that sort of thing. Wright is there to hit on face. Dan and Keith are completely innocent, except that they're now friends with Face and Murdoch, and Face and Murdoch don't want them to get caught in the crossfire of them doing anything dangerous. And then later on, they start getting suspicious, which puts them in the line of fire. Um, and the whole place is bugged, and there's all these things going on, and it, it, it's really, really tense. And bad things start to happen, too. Yeah, um, one of my favorite things about this part is even though it does get intense, and it starts feeling more dangerous. You also <laughs> have the introduction of the one bed trope, you know, because, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. you know, once Murdoch figures out, because when they first get to the estate, the red estate, they have no idea how dangerous it's actually going to be till they start driving up. Right. And that's when they see the guards. Um, it isn't till a day later that Murdoch realizes that their room is completely bugged. And at that point of realization, they realize that they have to be on point in their characters 24-7 all the time, which, I don't know, may require them to sleep in the same bed and participate in some, you know, fun activities for right to see on the camera. We'll see. Yeah, I feel like... It wasn't super um, clear how bad Wright was. You know, they had their suspicions or like where this was going to go until this point where all of a sudden the danger is really escalated. And it's that there's this thing with Face where he has a lot of trauma from previous sexual assaults when he was uh, a POW, I think, or yeah. Well, they all Um, were, right? Yeah, they all were. I, I picked up on that later, but like it affects face quite a bit and so this is actually seated earlier in the story which i thought was good when Wright first touches his hand when he like first meets him he pulls back and then he chastises himself for having that involuntary reaction and has to justify making up a story about being beaten up for you know for being gay um in his old hometown but it's actually that he doesn't like anyone to touch him and this is actually what i thought was a really good personal through line for face is like he does not, he has so much trauma, like PTSD, that he doesn't let people touch him. Um, he's gotten used to light touches, you know, like every so often, you know, I'll move out of the way with my hand from people he's really close to, but anyone else, no. And he mentions that in sexual relationships, he's been kind of a like a caring and giving lover, but he always has to feel like he's in control. So... For that reason, he's never really gotten close to anyone. And he is close to Murdoch. Murdoch is his best friend. 
And it finally comes down to the room is bugged. Wright is very dangerous. If they do not sleep together, Wright will try to, I don't know, take advantage of face, I guess. I don't know exactly how this, it's weird how it shakes out. It actually makes sense the way the author phrases it, but it's, it's a weird situation, I guess. Yeah, they're really worried about Wright finding them out. Right. Because if he, mm-hmm. if he finds out that they're not actually a real couple, like the whole jig is up. Right. So they right. really feel for some reason like they have to sell that hard. And now that they know that Wright is like watching them like a creepy perv in their bedroom, they have to sell it. Sorry. Yeah. It's like know? one bed on crack. It's, you know, it's not just the yeah. one bed. It's like. Also, you're performing for a evil voyeur, so yeah. There's a trope for that too, and I forget what it's called, but uh, but yeah, it's kind of the two tropes together where the stakes are very high, you know. And I'd like to comment because we skipped over it. One of the reasons the stakes have become this high is because at this point in the story, they go into the mansion, they find an excuse to get into like Wright's office, they hack the computer, they take some files, and it turns out the files are not particularly useful because he's got like immensely deep layers of security or whatever. But it does tip right off to the fact that someone has accessed his files and Face knows that Wright knows because Wright goes to Face to ask if he has any suspicions, especially of Dan and Keith, who are also there. And so he's looking for someone really close in who is suspicious to murder. Like, that is actively what Wright is doing at this point in the story when they feel the need to, like, have sex as performance partly right and so like yeah it's a bad scene well and there's also that scene of the morning after this is the morning after Wright has figured out right that someone has accessed his files and um face and murdoch are in the bed together and murdoch wakes up to find Wright and Wright's like henchmen or whatever in the room with them supposedly bringing them some coffee and we're not really sure what Wright is actually doing there. But when Murdoch opens his eyes, he sees the um, concealed carry weapon on the henchman. And th- it, that seems to be a moment where he realizes, like, oh, God, like, this is dangerous, you know? Yeah. Part of the reason I had a little trouble remembering exactly what led up to this sort of escalation is because everything that happens after it is really, really intense. And by the time they have to perform the sexual act, it's sort of all about Face's trauma and Murdoch trying to be gentle with him. And and they do it. They do. And I actually think that scene between them is really emotive and kind. But again, we come back to Face questioning whether this is Murdoch playing a role or whether he really cares about him. And it's like, dude, obviously he cares about you. But anyway... <laughs> Yeah, that scene was really interesting, especially because, like, they find a pretext, or Murdoch comes up with a pretext for Face to be touch-shy in the context of their theoretically long-term married relationship also. And so, like, it allows Murdoch to approach Face, like, with this excuse of, of, of like, being really tender and difficult and, you know, and gentle and, like, non-routine, right? And so, like, they've got, they get to perform it on that level while it also being like the first time that face has had sexual contact with someone since you know the PO war experiences and also just as a sideline while we're talking about the PO war experiences it seems like i kind of appreciate just as a 
as a sideline thing that they all seem to have experienced sexual assault in the PO war camp, and it affected them differently. And that seems like a very human thing, like, that does affect people differently, and, you know, you do have trauma in different ways or deal with it in different ways. I would also assume that, like, Face is definitely the pretty boy, so I would assume that he, and I think the author even makes mention of this, that he had kind of the worst experience. It was just more. Um, but I, I, it felt a little forced because obviously Murdoch was doing it for the, you know, the, the camera at the audio bugging, but he's literally like, remember forced, those yes. times? Yeah. He's like, no, it's okay. You know, remember the, he's like, the doctor said you wouldn't remember much, but you know, when those men, uh, beat you and raped you, you know, and it's like, no one would say that, but he's giving him a setup. It's like, remember when those men beat you and raped you? It's like. Okay, dude. But, you know, that's it works because they need to say it out loud. And Wright is so, at this point, we're realizing that Wright is really obsessive. And he starts to, he's got these really intense thoughts about how he wants to mold face into the ideal lover. Like, he can, he can teach him how to love him. Like, it's really creepy. Like, he can teach him how to experience, you know, the most pleasure and be the perfect man. And it's, yeah. So I think Wright's kind of, I guess, uh, obsessiveness clouds him sometimes to the obviousness of what these two are doing. Right, right. Where he's like watching on camera and he doesn't see it as like, oh, that's a weird thing to say. You're right. I think he's just so clouded by his, uh, you know, desire for what he wants that he doesn't even pay attention, which they really could have used in their favor. <laughs> I'm not sure that they did. Um, and so, like, they get through, they get through that. And after that, things things get jumbled in my mind because like you said tori like things are so intense that like i i kind of remember some things that happened but i don't i my mind doesn't have all the dots about how one thing leads to the next in the story there's a lot of things um i think it is also important to note here that after that tender lovemaking scene between um face and murdoch there is the part where they also take a shower together the next day because they discover that the shower is not bugged with sound just with the camera so they can actually go into the shower and have a private conversation without right hearing them and everything and that is the part where face starts to question murdoch a little bit like you know, do you actually love me or is this just a part? And that's when we like realized for the first time. And I kind of liked that the author put it in there at that moment that, you know, Murdoch is chooses that point in the story to admit for the first time that like, yes, my feelings are real and I've loved you for a long time. And, you know, I'm not just playing a part here, which I thought was really nice and also important to like some parts of the rest of the story to understand that, that it's not just them playing this role, but they actually do really have deep feelings for each other, and they actually really do love each other. So here's where I feel like it... I wouldn't say it veers off in surprising directions, because it already did, but like it, it kind of doubles down on some of the directions that it's going. Because we have... Basically, the next thing that happens is that Wright drugs Face and Murdoch, slips him something, and then sexually assaults Face. Like, while he's too sick to resist. And while um, the other couple, Dan and Keith, are taking care of Murdoch. And, yeah, Tori, do you have something to add? Is, is that summary fair? 
it is. It's just like, so we have Dan and Keith who are pretty sympathetic. You know, they, they clearly don't really know what's going on. But they kind of have their suspicions as like exactly how messed up right is like it's already been bad like he's been obsessive and like wanting to shape and mold faces alter ego or i forget the names they assume but into his rich i think into his personal um play thing i guess but when he assaults him he's it's not just so there he's drugged and then he pretends um face pretends to be asleep and he has to kind of grin and bear it but the assault is like it's very violent like he bites him so much he bleeds like it i don't want to get into the details but it it starts to become this thing where you're like wow like this is really scary this man is really scary i think is when you realize that and dan and keith don't seem to understand why it's bad to leave they leave right alone with face for like 20 minutes they don't seem to understand why that's bad um, because I think they're suspicious of his attentions, but not suspicious that he could be this bad of a person. And Murdoch also, you know, drugged and they blame it on bad champagne because that's the only thing those two consumed that no one else did. Whatever. Or Wright does, right? Blame it on the bad champagne. I think Dan and Keith believe that, but Murdoch's so heavily drugged, he's just struggling to get back into the room. And then what's... It's rough is I think at this point Murdoch has promised to protect Face and he failed to do so. So he's having a lot of guilt and Face is having a lot of trauma. And I don't know how to describe it except that there's a lot of emotions and it's really intense. Yeah, and I just like to say, along with kind of the revelation of like the new depths of how terrible right is, you start getting, I feel like, slightly more frequent paragraphs from Wright's internal perspective which is not a fun place to be as a reader. Uh, but the author kind of lets us check in on what he's thinking, like reasonably often, I feel like, in the second half of his fan fiction. Does anyone understand why they put Face and Murdoch in separate rooms to recover from being poisoned or drugged? I didn't really get it. Do, do they say something? I, I, You know, I read this twice, and I couldn't figure out why. Because, I mean, like... If they're an established couple, you would probably want to take them both to the same rooms. I just didn't understand why they were in separate rooms, except that the author did need some sort of, you know, presupposed subtext, I guess, to get face alone with right. But it was a little odd. Was there, there are definitely a few things in this fic that feel a little forced. But I think that it does serve the plot and it serves to advance the emotional stories of the characters, which is Face's trauma, Murdoch's protectiveness and guilt, and Wright's just like general evilness. <laughs> so, Yeah, no, for a moment I thought it was that Murdoch had managed to get back up to their room separately before like, you know, Face's symptoms hit. But I'm not, I'm rereading this section too and I'm not sure either. But... <laughs> I mean, in any case, that all goes down, and they call in. Um, they call in Hannibal and Ba, who are like in the nearby town, like you know, supposed to be his father. Like, oh, we're feeling really sick. Come pick us up from this, you know, rich man's mansion. And they do. And there's various forms of fallout from this. There's obviously. Face's trauma, Tori, you mentioned Murdoch's guilt, 
there's the fact that Dan and Keith are a relatively benign couple back in the 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 you know mansion now now they're like oh like i'm pretty sure something bad happened you know there between right and face and then then they're like talking to each other about their suspicions about about you know right and these other people who have disappeared like former pro another you know former protege this guy that the 18 is supposed to be investigating and of course the mansion's bugged so that's really really and that's really bad for them uh the mansion's bugged and um and right is looking for someone to blame and, you know, back at the A-team, obviously everybody is very, very upset. And you would have expected, if guns were going to start blazing, this is about the point when the guns would, you know, start blazing, right? Like, you can't imagine that, like, B.A. and Hannibal are going to be like, yeah, okay, let's continue with this. But they kind of continue to not make that call to th- to like throw out the operation the deep deep cover operation and instead go with explosives and the reasoning also like i there's a reason the reason is hannibal or murdoch i forget who proposed this but like saying like look if if we bow out of the plan now without face signing off on it it's just another amount of control that is being stripped from him like it's just you know it's total victimization and, and defeat on top of what he's already suffered. And so, like, it might be that he needs to, like, continue this on his own terms, or that he at least needs to be the one to make the call about how to continue this in order to, like, maintain the sense of control over the whole situation. Yeah, I got that same sense. And it was Hannibal who actually, I think, said that because, okay. you know, he's the captain. He's not the captain, but he's the colonel of the team, right? He's responsible for these people. And uh, and I think he's feeling his own sense of guilt, but he handles it a little bit different than Murdoch does. I think Murdoch's more emotional about it, and Hannibal's just like, uh, you know, I think we need to pull our people out of here. It's getting, like, way out of hand, you know? But then he also, I think, recognizes that, yeah, you're right, like, you know, Face isn't a child. He's a grown man. He can make his own decisions. This was his operation and everything. Um it still felt a little odd to me that they end up going there just because, like, if I was in that position, I think I would just pull the plug. And I think B.A. really wants to pull the plug because B.A. is super protective of everybody on the team and doesn't want to see anybody get hurt. But, you know, I think they decided surrounded to surrounded by kinda... fools. Yeah. I mean, well, I think they decided Face's agency in this case is more important then, you know, kind of going in there with guns blazing. But yes, in a in a typical A-team uh, episode, this would have been where the explosions start happening, I think. Although I will say that a very A-team-esque thing did happen in this scene, because in this scene, we learn that um, Face did manage to get more information out of Wright's mansion before they left. And they need um, Murdoch and Hannibal to go check it out. But of course, they can't just leave the house that they're in because Wright's guys have followed them there and are parked on the street kind of watching them, right? So they need some sort of like plan to sneak them out of the house so they can go do some investigation. And they end up ordering pizza 
And then the pizza guys come in and uh, Murdoch and Hannibal steal the pizza guys like pizza delivery outfits and then sneak off in the pizza delivery van dressed as pizza delivery people, you know, and they go off and they do their little investigation. And I just <laughs> I love that part because it, that really is like so A-team-esque, like they would absolutely do something like that. Yeah, this is like in the middle of all that tension, you get this point of humor because they explain, you know, to the pizza delivery people. I mean, first they say, I think first B.A. answers the door and he's like, why would I order this many pizzas? You guys are dubbies. Then they like bring them inside because <laughs> they did, you know, and take their uniforms. Then they explain to them that they work for the government. This is top secret. And, you know, and they you know, he says, tie yourselves up and pretend like you know, you were kidnapped at this top secret mission and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's really comical because the guys fall for it hook, line, and sinker. You know, they're like, obviously. <laughs> yeah, and that part where they're dropping the delivery guys back off into the parking lot after everything is over. And they're just like, okay, sneak off, you know, tell people you were kidnapped. And they're just sneaking off in the parking lot, like, because, you know, as seen on TV, right? <laughs> We're right. top secret spies for the government. It was just really funny. I thought that was awesome. It it definitely serves to lighten all of the tension that's been building and kind of ground us back in, I think, what A-Team, like the A-Team is more genre, like more of A-Team, more of the A-Team's genre rather than where this has been going so far. Yeah, well, we get that for a hot second. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like a minute, long. yeah. I know. Because <laughs> like the... So what exactly happens? It's like Hannibal and Murdoch are attacked, right? Like, what, what's this near-death experience again? Um, are you talking about when um, Face and Murdoch recover and they go back to right, and then he sets oh, them up okay. with dinner reservations oh, yeah. at a restaurant that they both really like? Oh, that's what I'm thinking of, yes. Mm. Not Hannibal and Murdoch. Face and Murdoch. So Hannibal and Murdoch got to do the thing they needed to do, I guess. All right. That part went off without a hitch? Yeah, yeah. Else. They ended up, like, investigating, and when they went on their investigations, they found all of these um, lockers with oh, information right. inside the lockers, and these lockers were leased to—well, they were leased in the names of a lot of Wright's former victims— and inside each locker was a name, an address, and then compromising photos of Wright's yeah, contacts. Yeah, material for other yeah. people, right. That's yeah. where we find the depths of his, like, you know, evil blackmail slash whatever organization. And yeah, okay, that's right. That's pretty horrifying. And I feel like way early on they talked about drugs being involved in this whole operation too, but I think that's like, that's, that's where the money's coming from and this blackmail material is like a sideline to help the, you know, get contacts and helpful network for the drug operation. I don't think we ever find out what the drug is either or what the drugs involved are. To be honest, I was paying less attention to that plot line. As soon as you realize that Wright is evil, you're basically just like, he's evil, you know? Because yeah. you do get inside his head and he is very evil. We know like, um He's got all this grooming narrative around what he's going to do to to face, you know? It's, it's just pretty bad, you know? He assaults him, obviously. So, you know, at that point, you're just like, yeah, this guy's just like stone-cold evil. And we do know because... I felt like the premise of the investigation was weird because the guy who hired him just said, my son worked for this guy and then disappeared. He had these suspicions, but it wasn't super clear. But it does become clear 
that Wright tries to groom these younger men into becoming his perfect lover, and when that doesn't work out, he has them killed. And that's kind of the big crux of it. So Murdoch and Face now know this, um, but they're pretending not to, and they're still in deep cover despite everything. And this is the point where you're like, I guess deep cover was necessary, maybe? But I don't know why it was at first. Uh, at this point, I also feel like they probably should have pulled out and done the guns blazing thing. But, you know, they decide to accept um, Wright's offer to send them to a fancy dinner. This really nice restaurant as a couple. And they think basically, oh, well, he can't drug us here. It's a public place. Like, it's, you know, he's not going to be there. Blah, blah, blah. What can go wrong? Well, Wright basically has the entire restaurant, like, drive-by shot up as they are leaving. Which... Well, you know what? what? One thing one thing <laughs> that I just realized it happens in between these things, right? Oh, is go on. Dan and Heath get murdered. Because, you know, oh, they... Of course. Yeah. And they're still deep undercover. I mean, like, Face and Mur- Murdoch are still deep undercover. But, you know, those two made the mistake of talking about their suspicions about their employer in their employer's heavily bugged and armed mansion. And they are, you know, their car is pushed off a cliff and they're very dead. And so, um, Face and Murdoch are even angry and I guess even more committed to this whole thing. Right. Now it's almost like revenge. I think especially for Face, he's just like, damn, this is really fucked. Like, But, but it does also seem like it's working in that Face does get promoted to take their place. Yeah, it does. But I I totally agree with you, Tori. Like, I think that at this point, Face feels like he's so deep into it now that he can't just pull out because then what does it all mean if he does that, right? Mm -hmm. Because Dan and Keith are dead. He feels a lot of guilt because that happened. He really wanted to protect them because they were innocent. They weren't involved. Um, But, you know, when that happens, I feel like he just feels a deep responsibility to keep going with it at that point because, you know, they're in so deep and now the stakes have just like, you know, literally been pushed off a cliff. Yeah. Those were literally. The They're gone now. Uh, um, well, this is the turning point in Face's emotional story because I don't know if we mentioned this. I think this is mostly from Face's perspective. Like it's mostly his emotional and it's and it becomes even more so towards the end. Um, but this is where revenge starts to build, you know, instead of just responsibility and hating this guy and wanting to you know uh, i guess provide justice this is the start of where his revenge arc begins because he liked dan and keith and he's starting to go he's starting to get angrier and angrier basically and so you talked about the restaurant invitation the shooting they're both injured murdoch more so They're taken to the hospital. And here's where twists start happening that I was just like, wait, what? What? Because Face is told that Murdoch has died by a doctor. Right? Like, tell me if I'm, like, Mm -hmm. not remembering this order of events. That's exactly what happens. His reaction is to run off continuing to be undercover back to right pretending to be you know uh in such emotional distress that 
Wright can pick him up on the rebound as, you know, his, his like, love toy or whatever. That's Face's reaction about what should be done in this circumstance. Because he's going to, like, he's going to use that position to, like, get all the information he needs to, like, you know, ruin and or murder this guy. I feel like at this point, because, like, this revelation of these real-life love feelings between him and Murdoch is so new, and he has barely had time to process that or enjoy that or whatever, and that's been something that he's been wanting for a really long time. And when he thinks that Murdoch is dead, he just goes into this whole burn-it-to-the-ground kind of mentality where he just thinks, well, I have nothing left to live for, so I might as well just go in there. And it's all about revenge and just burning right to the ground at that point. He seems like he does not care what happens to him at that point. For sure. And he's immediately off the grid in terms of being contacted by, like, you know, Hannibal or BA. Um, because, like, Wright's not letting him have any contact out. He's just, like, keeping him as, like, own personal personal lover like just in the mansion doesn't leave the mansion so he's like kind of off of all contact there um now hannibal's not dead face was told he was dead by by a doctor or like someone pretending to be a doctor and the employee of Wright, because Wright basically wanted exactly what is happening to happen i uh, so like the shooting i guess was aimed at hannibal specifically at Murdoch. Like, at, sorry, at, at Murdoch, not Hannibal. <laughs> this shooting was aimed at Murdoch specifically, but it didn't seem that targeted back when it happened. I was like, how could how could Wright have known that this was how things were going to go down? I know. I know. Like, Because I, I, another woman dies. Like, yeah. a bunch of people are shot. Like, he basically had the restaurant shot up. And, and what are the consequences for that? Like, I know it wasn't Wright who did it personally, but still, like, that is a public shooting. That seems like a lot. So. And... And like, so he had a doctor in place to give this lie, like someone, you know, right there, ready or to do this. Or someone pretending to be a doctor. Or, or yeah. pretending to be a doctor. But I mean, in any case, like, it seems like that can't have been an improv, right? It wasn't just like, oh, man, man, that guy's wounded, but that guy's still alive. I should have someone pretend to be a doctor and go tell him that his lover's dead so that he comes and, like, sleeps with me. Like, was that, was that supposed to be an improvisation? I just was so confused. I, I do want to say it is confusing. And... We've mentioned, like, these sort of weird tropes of it, like, these kind of weird twists that don't fully make sense. But I would like to say that this story is firmly in the gothic terror genre. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to make sense. It is definitely genre fiction. It's not the genre of the age, but it is the genre of these kind of, like, horrifying, terrifying things happen, and there is a clear, very evil villain. And how is that going to play out? And, like, the, the distinction between horror, gothic horror, and gothic terror is usually that in gothic terror, the protagonist loses, whereas in gothic horror, oftentimes, there is a romance, and the romance is successful, and they defeat the villain. So I think this is definitely in the terror genre because of what happens next. <laughs> it's kind of a descent into madness, in a way, for Face. Yeah. And I mean, I was thinking Romeo and Juliet a little bit here because I don't have mm-hmm. as much of an English grounding to you. I was just like, can, oh, can you can you talk to somebody before you do the suicidal thing? Can you like wait a moment? Talk to somebody else, please. But no. And so, yeah, you and then you get in Face's head for a while throughout this last part. And geez, it's horrifying. <laughs> He's like, 
just embracing this role, he's referring to himself as a whore repeatedly, with this nihilism of just, like, wanting to destroy right and go down. And he does also, like, he does that thing, including, like, in the end, stabbing right to watch him die slowly in front of his eyes while he has all the incriminating evidence in front of him. So, I mean, I guess you, I guess you get satisfaction from that sense in the end. Yeah. Um, it's super interesting how after he accomplishes that goal, you know, you get this ending scene that reminds me of like a Stephen King novel, you know, where he's just hanging around the neighborhood. His last like act in the whole story is dropping off this incriminating evidence to Hannibal. Um, and then the final scene is this little kid on a bicycle in the neighborhood that sees a weird guy hanging around. You know, and he thinks about telling his mom that there's a weirdo in the neighborhood, but the guy says he's moving on. And so the kid just pedals on past and it just reminded me of like a Stephen King novel or something, you know, where it's that crazy last, you know, scene. But it is just so crazy to me that, you know, nothing happy or good happens at the end of this whole story. It was like the craziest twist ever. The weirdness of it, I think, is like not knowing the genre going in, right? Like, you know, realizing this was kind of like a horror story, you know, I I was like, oh, you know, or really, I, yeah, like I said, gothic terror, but you don't need to get specific. It's very Stephen King, like you mentioned. That's, it totally is. Because it's kind of like the face's descent, you know, into this horrible place. But the thing is, is that I thought when, you know, the doctor said Murdoch is dead, I, I fully believe that could be possible. But I also suspected, oh, maybe it's not. And of course he is alive, but they have no way of contacting face. So you really get this last like isolation. He spends, I think, like six months before he kills Wright. And that's when he gives up on his own identity, starts referring to himself as the whore, you know, and basically just gives up on everything. And with how much love was building between Murdoch and Face before that, I think that emphasizes the tragedy, especially because it's like a tragedy of errors, because he doesn't know that Murdoch is alive and he can't know. For some reason, they can't contact. But I guess that's kind of what the story is going for. And I think it is really effective in that sense. I don't know if it's what I wanted to read, but it is effective. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it's striking. But I mean... Even at that late point, even, you know, when you're in face pretending to be Wright's lover for those months, I was like, oh, but then at the end, even though there's only a tiny little bit of story left here, he must go back and find out that Murdoch is alive and it will end on some sort of promise mm-hmm. or hope of like healing. Right. right? Because, yeah. I mean, it's just as easy to do that as it is to go with the incredibly depressing ending, but the author went with the incredibly depressing ending. And with Murdoch, too. Yeah, it's such a tragic, tragic ending, you know? And you don't expect that in fan fiction as much, but it was super interesting and cool to see it in this story, so. Um, Yeah, I I don't usually see that. And you check in with Murdoch, and Murdoch's back in the, uh, what were you saying, the VA hospital? Yeah, he he has his own descent into Bandis a little bit here because, you know, they know that Murdoch has taken off. They know where he is. But like you said, they have no way to contact him. And so um, 
what the story doesn't really go into very much is uh, Murdoch has a long history with um, mental illness issues. And uh, so what happens with, um, you know, the shooting and with face going off and disappearing, it just kind of triggers that, I think, back in for Murdoch. And so he does end up back in the VA hospital. He has memory problems. He can't quite remember sometimes that he's not still playing a role where he's, you know, faces lover and all of that stuff. It's just really sad what happens. Yeah, I think that's especially what makes it in that genre of fiction, you know. Um, I guess contemporary horror is similar, but like definitely what, you know, back in the day they'd call that terror genre is like that the descent into madness is central. I like that you pointed that out. And it's really about, you know, the darkness of humanity and like what someone can be pushed to do if they're pushed to a breaking point. And I do appreciate this sort of fiction. I don't know if I enjoy it, but I appreciate what it's doing. So it's effective in that sense. I still like, I want to, because I'm me. I want to have hope for this ending. I want to believe like they're going to come back together somehow because they're still both alive and they can, you know, I feel like maybe it's just me, but I read that there could be hope. I just, I don't know if that's what the author intended. Now, speaking of genres, we've harped on this enough and we probably don't have to anymore, but thinking about how Face is completely uncontactable by the rest of the A-team, I just now, talking over it, thought, well, have you tried heavy explosives and busting in there with guns blazing to find him? Because that would seem to be the obvious thing. What, right? I wondered about that myself, because you would think that at this point, surely at this point, when they've been pushed so far and they don't even know if Face is okay. And at one point when Face is missing, B.A. even says, well, you know, I think we're kind of expecting to find Face's body parts in a trash can one of these days. And so they're fully believing that something horrible is going to happen to him and he might end up dead. And they still don't go in there. Right. They still don't go. Unbelievable. <laughs> this just occurred to me, but would y'all say like maybe some of the frustration of this fanfic is that it is almost in an opposing genre to A-Team. Like in A-Team, you know, everything's going to be okay, obviously. And it's going to be okay by force. If, you know, it's, it's just like, whereas this is much more the psychological and the darkness that can come from within. Whereas A-Team is just like, yeah, no, we don't really explore that. We just blast outdoors and make everything fine. Um, anyway. I, I think that's totally right, Tori. That's the frust- That's got to be the frustration of it. It's like, when is BA going to go blow someone up and shoot someone else mm-hmm. to fix this problem? Because I just cannot accept that, like, that they can't do that. I can't accept right. that that's not a valid solution to an A-team situation. <laughs> like, in, you know, where they're coming from. Well, and especially when you consider these people's backgrounds this is the a team like they are special forces you know they're not the b team yeah this is not the b team (laughs) this is not the c team like this is the a team and they have special forces training that's why they help people as soldiers of fortune now because they have the expertise to do that and so like 
Yeah, that that you're right, Tori. That's why this story just subverts all of those expectations because you do expect them to just kind of come in and handle this situation the same way that they always do with guns blazing and blowing stuff up and whatever. And they chose a very psychological way of going about it, which was so unusual. But I really loved having my expectations subverted here. So even though it didn't end the way I thought it was going to, and it kind of felt like a cliffhanger, I would agree that there is like that that slim possibility at the end that maybe somehow they can still get together at the end, but we don't see that part, you know? No, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> well, that brings us to the end of the story. And I think to a natural point of talking about things we did not like about the story or thought the story could have done better. And it might be the same things we've just been talking about. But is there anything else that we want to come? I mean, but I, but I take your point. I feel like Chaos and Blue, you're also emphasizing that just because this is intensely frustrating as a reader doesn't mean that it doesn't make it an effective story. In fact, it's almost more effective. Like, you're very engaged um, because of those subversions. So I, I guess I, I don't know whether it makes it a worse story. For those kind of A-team solutions to be so off the table. But as a reader, I didn't like it. I didn't like for those A-team solutions to be so very, very off the table. (laughs) I think that when I was thinking about the things I didn't like about this, that's kind of where I was going to. Um, To me, it was more in the characterization of the different people that are involved in this story. Um, Because I have extensive background with the A-team, I'm familiar with these characters and how they're supposed to behave. Oh, one thing I didn't quite mention is, um, you know, at the beginning of the story, no, actually, I'll mention this later when we talk about the things that we did like. But um, as far as characterization goes, I felt like it was very um, OOC in most places. I had a really tough time recognizing the characters that I was familiar with in the way that this author presented them. And that doesn't mean that they're bad. I very much enjoyed this story, you know, even though it was uh, not what I was expecting. Um, But I will say that um, all of the characters here behaved in ways that I was not expecting because (laughs) they they were a little out of character for me. So... And I, I guess that's the same kind of thing, right? Is that like, is is BA are BA and Hannibal going to sit back and let this happen to this extent? It doesn't right. seem right. And, the, yeah. and that's the thing is they would never. And honestly, Hannibal would never let Face do this in the first place. He would never <laughs> let anyone else plan an operation, you right. know. And he would never let them go for the long con. Face is usually not this. Um, uh, troubled <laughs> you know psychologically right. and emotionally um usually uh murdoch is the one that's more troubled because he he's the one that has the history with psychotic episodes and things like that and he was so out of character in this whole thing because he was so stable and i understand why he had to be the stable one in this particular fic um so that was just kind of different to see him in that role of being like the stable one and the one trying to make sure that face was okay. He does get to name a semi-imaginary cockroach pet in their apartment, though. So, <laughs> oh <that>. right, <laughs> yeah, because he has this ongoing thing where he's um, in love with all life forms, great and small, such as wanting to free the escargot from the restaurant. 
<laughs> yeah. Or you'd be disappointed that they were served minced <laughs> in their shells. And that I was fun because that was right? in character. Yeah. He tends to fixate on things like that, uh, you mm-hmm. know, so he would totally do something like that. And honestly, some of the banter that happened between him and Face in the beginning of the story was really spot on, like super spot on. It was funny and it was exactly the type of conversation that they would have had. I think there's many strong moments, but I guess it's my turn to do criticism. So I know I mentioned that the setup doesn't make a lot of sense because we don't know all of these things about right. So if they don't know that, why did they do this? But it does actually make sense in the end. I'm going to pick on it too much. I mentioned that. I actually think what is, um, I don't know, what is most difficult with the story is I completely forgot what I was going to say. Never mind. (laughs) Sorry. It's such a really good point. It just like completely evaporated. Well, it'll probably spring to mind in a moment. Yeah, probably will. But but in the meantime, like we can circle back to that and we can move on to praise because I think we do have a lot of things to praise too. I think we do, yeah. Uh, things that we liked about the story or want to, you know, give a shout out to the author for. I loved the humorous parts in this story. Um, it was so dark and I'm usually not used to seeing moments of levity and humor in a dark piece like this. But the fact that the author did put them in in places that didn't seem awkward you know, or unnecessary. I really, really appreciated that and loved that because, you know, um, there are lots of times in canon where you find humor uh, with the A-team. And so that just seemed very true to form. And I think both of you or Tori, you in particular have called out the writing. It is generally pretty strong. And I think, I mean, I, mean, I said at the beginning, I think there was some, was some formatting that might've been lost in, you know, this place that is archived. Because there's, there's like no scene transitions indicated when there's clearly scene transitions. But other than that, I feel like the strength of this writing is its effectiveness in provoking emotions from me. Because I don't usually get as worked up reading a story as I do reading this one. And not just because I'm angry at it. Like, I mean, when the author was trying to make things like anxious and tense and ominous, uh, they did, and it was very effective. And when they want to make things, you know, really distressing and tragic, like they, they get that emotion from me. It's all like very well done in that sense. I think I would agree with that. Um, like I said, I said before, the writing is strong, but I don't think that was super specific. It is very good at evoking emotions. And I think I mentioned the term emotional story multiple times. That's because I think this is mostly, you know, there is actually, you know, a really tense overarching kind of suspense narrative with this villain. But I feel like I was following more the relationship between Face and Murdoch for a while. And then, you know, eventually when that, you know, they're separated, kind of like Face's descent you know i think that the author was really good at evoking trauma essentially which is a weird thing to praise because i don't necessarily know if i want to read about that but i did like reading this in the sense that it was evoked so well 
I, I like appreciate the author's skill at evoking trauma and trauma responses. And also, you know, this love and love lost narrative, which is the tale as old as time. And they, I think they did it really effectively, to be honest. And I also don't think you get this a lot in fan fiction. You don't get this sort of like kind of dark genre fiction. Um, the author knew what they wanted to do and they did it really well. I feel like you don't not get that. I, I know there's plenty of fanfic authors that kind of live to make their favorites suffer. Like, put them through <laughs> I guess the emotional that's true. ringer. Um, maybe this one just did it, like, really good. <laughs> really well. I think there's that, and I think maybe in general we don't read a whole lot of things that are this dark. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily true. We've read some dark stuff. I think this is the best of the dark stuff we've read, to be honest. Well, the Maverick reads dark stuff all the fucking time and i will tell you that this story surprised me you know when you think that Mm -hmm. you've read it all and you think that you've seen every twist in the book and the fact that something can still surprise you like this you know i think that's what i appreciated the most because i i agree with you tori about the dark gritty realism the emotional realism of the story i appreciated that but uh yeah I read dark stuff all the time. And, and that cliffhanger at the end, man, when you don't know what happened, you know, that, that just got me. I love it. Yeah. That was a super effective story. I mean, like, as a person who doesn't read a lot of dark stuff because, like, it's hard for me, I still felt like I enjoyed the story because it was so friggin' effective. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've never even read it. I've never even seen an episode of The A-Team. And I was invested in what was going on in this story. <laughs> uh, by the way, Tori, has your praise sprung back into your mind, fully formed? Oh, my, like, criticism? No, oh, criticism. I... that's right. Yeah, no, I, 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 like, there was this one thing that, but to be honest, if it hasn't come back to me, it's probably not important, so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Whew, all right. I think that brings us to the end of this story, unless there's anything else you two want to talk about specifically that we missed. All right, I see heads shaking, but the readers can't. Listeners can't. Or people reading this fanfic, you can't see that either. So I guess that's our cue to wrap it up. But Chaos Blue, can you tell us about the things that you do online and where people can find them? Absolutely. I am the host of the Fanfic Maverick podcast, and you can find all my show stuff at my website, fanficmaverickpodcast.com. You recently had an episode that um, our editor Dom listened to about like kind of what isn't fan fiction or like where the line about fan fiction is. And that's a topic that definitely interests me that like we've had a couple of debates about on the show. I think it come up, came up most in Tropical Storm, which is the Xena fanfic that actually has no Xena characters whatsoever. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the many. And also in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I think we had to have that discussion. Uh, but so... That just sounds like an, an interesting episode that people might be interested in taking a listen to, even if you're not otherwise interested in like modern fandoms like you normally interview about. Yeah, we do try to pull in meta <laughs> fan fiction discussions every now and then. I usually drop them as bonus episodes, but um, you know, people come to me all the time on Tumblr and uh, in email and things, and they ask questions. And people bring up really amazing points that are just really interesting to think about. So uh, anytime I get the chance to talk about fan fiction, boy, I am there. So, yeah, have a listen if, if that interests you, because uh, we just dropped that a couple weeks ago. 
And thank you again one more time for being here to talk about fan fiction in a different way than you usually do. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was fun to have you as well. And I appreciate you enjoying it. Well, if you want to come back on for The Sentinel someday, that's another fandom that had a big zine scene that I just know nobody, I don't know any fans of other than you now. (laughs) I loved The Sentinel. You know what's funny about that is um, I love The Sentinel because of the fan fiction. I had never seen The Sentinel and I stumbled onto (laughs) Sentinel fan fiction in the 2000s. And man, like the way that these writers wrote these characters, I think that was actually my first like encounter with more sophisticated written fan fiction. If, you know, um, and it's also interesting that the uh, the creator of AO3 was heavily involved in the 852 Prospect archive for the Sentinel. Um, and uh, she was the one that actually automated the archiving of that site and then created AO3, you know, off of that. So oh, very cool. I had no idea that there was a predecessor there in terms of how it was set up. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that either. I just went to that site all the time just for the good good. But, you know, apparently it was running on some pretty sophisticated uh, software for archiving. So very cool. All right. But we'll close up having you today and let you get going. And I'm just going to lead us out with our usual things that I say. This was episode 118 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective. Uh, Dark Passage by... Elizabeth Kent, back from the era when people just used their full real names online to publish fanfiction mm-hmm. under. Uh, you can find a the copy that we read on 18slash.sockypress.com that has two eyes after sock. But don't try to memorize that. I will provide a link there in the show notes. And I used the A-team uh, fanfic dot, what was it, net for, uh, to find the the, the, the awards that I referenced here. And I'll, I'll provide a link back to that archived website as well for whoever is interested. The intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find this album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Our podcast is edited by Dom Davis, who has had to listen to us talk for some time about, I think, a show that she's also not particularly a fan of and with a lot of horrifying sexual like assault in it so that's part of her job and then later she'll be editing it for your consumption thanks again dom you can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly retrofanfic and if you have questions comments or thoughts about the episode contact us on twitter at retrofanfic we've got facebook at retrofanfic Reddit at Fanfic Retrospective. You can send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. And we've also got a Discord server, which I'll provide a link to in the show notes. You can also leave comments on whatever service you're using to listen to this podcast. I'm Amato. Bori. And Chaos Blue. We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other. Until next time, take care. And if anything terrible happens to either of you, I promise I will go in guns blazing. <laughs> appreciate that because yeah i really don't understand why they at any point so many points even if it wasn't 18 so many points that i would have had my guns placing well thank you guys for going on that little journey with me i didn't know that (laughs) that story was gonna